Twilight Hours in the Adirondacks by Homer D.L. Sweet of this city, just published by Wincoops and Leonard. Hi there, this is Hugh Yeeman, and you're listening to Historic Headlines, the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100, and 150 years ago this week. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Hey there, and welcome to episode 13. 150 years ago this month, the Syracuse, New York Daily Standard printed the following under the header, Sketches of Onondaga, DeWitt. To find mixed in a clayey mass made mostly of the red and green shale, specimens of rock from every known formation this side of the St. Lawrence, mixed with every kind of limestone in small pieces, found south these hills, is not only very instructive in itself, but it seems to ask a man to think, to study, and make useful the knowledge he may acquire. The fertility of these hills depends, in an exact ratio, to the amount of lime in their composition, modified only by the inclination of their sides and the intelligence of the farmer who may have happened to own them. Farther north, where the little ridges of gravel lie like waves of the sea, and by which some day they were made, an investigation of their composition is very instructive and entertaining. These ridges are composed mostly of the water-worn pebbles of the Clinton group of shales, the Medina sandstone and the harder portion of the Lorraine shales, with a little of the Niagara limestone. When there is a sufficiency of the red shale mixed with these pebbles, they make in combination one of the best soils in the county. But if the clay is lacking, the land is too apt to suffer by dry weather. It is one of the easiest soils to till, ready for the plow very early in the season, and will produce almost anything. There is a small portion of the town on the line of the canal and railroad that is a little too level to be good until it is drained. To effect this, we think a combined effort will have to be made, or wait too many years. In the extreme north part was a track almost precisely similar that has been made more productive in all kinds of grain and less productive of fever and ague. There are great storehouses of muck and marl in all the swamps that are just beginning to be appreciated, and we predict that those farmers who use the most manures of this kind on clayey soil will be the most successful. One depressing feature of farming interest in the south part of the town is the plaster and lime business, which draws largely from the farmer's time that ought to be devoted to the improvement of the condition of his fields instead of working for his neighbor who owns the plaster or lime quarry. From a personal examination of several of the drift hills in the southwestern and middle portions of the town, 
looking, of course, for the poorest spots, we came to the conclusion that it was only vegetable matter that was lacking in the soil to make it as productive as other parts of the field. To obtain this, the intelligent farmer must figure to see which will cost the least, to draw muck from the swamp or get clover to grow there and turn it under. If so poor that clover will not grow, sow corn as is done for fodder and plow it in. Probably this is the cheapest, and certainly clover, after a liberal maturing with corn, will grow with a little gypsum. Some of the gravel ridges are so loose that they become leachy, for almost all manure might be rendered much more productive by a very little clay if plowed under deep, and not cultivated quite so deep ever after. Although there has been a great deal of training done, there has not as much as there ought to be. Neither has it been in all cases done with care. We could not learn the salt had ever been tried in any part of the town, and should feel happy in recording any facts that relate to its trial that may be sent us. Those were the words of Homer D.L. Sweet, a Pompey boy who is the subject of my very first interview, which I'm excited to share with you today. During the winter of 1867-68, while Homer D.L. Sweet was traveling around Onondaga County surveying for his upcoming map, he published these Sketches of Onondaga in the Standard. Those Sketches of Onondaga are what originally drew me to the subject of Homer D.L. Sweet, and they were going to be the centerpiece of this episode. But, and I want you to understand the magnitude of this statement, They're too boring for me to read in their entirety. I know, right? Me, the guy who did an entire eight-part series on the 1868 Syracuse mayoral election, finds them too boring to read. Now, I'm being a little facetious and more than a little unfair to good old Homer because his writing is deeply poetical in a nerdy sort of way. It's just that I'm realistic enough to recognize that the vast majority of people are not going to want to wade through paragraph after paragraph of animal husbandry, farming, and geology. But it's important that I read these excerpts because they give you insight not only into Homer's mind, but into his culture. Just listen to his authoritative tone on geology, farming, and rural planning. These next excerpts come from the Sketches of Onondaga piece on Cicero, published one week after the previous one. As always, follow along in the show notes for articles and references. Cicero Swamp, the largest piece of uncultivated land in the county, lies a little south of the center, contains about ten square miles that ultimately will be drained and rendered productive. It lies about 25 feet above Oneida Lake and centrally distant about four miles from South Bay. A comprehensive and extensive plan will have to be adopted to drain it, for no puttering or halfway measures will ever accomplish it. There were other swamps in the town that have been successfully drained, and where but a few years ago was an almost impenetrable thicket, today is seen some of the finest farms in the county. There is no doubt in our minds but what this town has improved more in the past 15 years than any one in the county that we have visited. This is due partially to two causes. First, a successful plank road, and second, 
the failing timber compelling the owners to turn their attention to agriculture. From those portions of the town which we could not visit, we have the best of reports, and from the section that we did visit, we can give cheerful testimony that as a majority of the farms, the indications are that as good a system of husbandry is practiced as could possibly be adapted to the locality. Underdraining has been practiced to quite an extent, and piles and piles of tile are now lying in the fields ready for the coming season. This is one of the best evidences of progress that can be adduced, for when farmers are willing to learn of their neighbors, to profit by their example and experience, to note their failures as well as their successes, to think of and remember that the same general laws govern them all in the same locality, then, and not until this time, will any great progress be made in any neighborhood. We could not learn that the subsoil plow has been used to any extent. We would recommend its use on all clayey soil that has been drained or partially drained with tile, as a great saving of tile and drains, which is quite an item of expense on a level clayey farm. Muck and marl are being drawn from the swamps in many instances and used as bedding for cattle and absorbance, and foreign manures have been used to a very limited extent. There are elements of fertility in town, enough to last a thousand years if properly used, and the people fully appreciate the importance of the position they occupy. A general admixture of the soil, a mixed system of husbandry, embracing grain raising and grazing, will prove eminently successful. Hugh here. So after reading those two sketches of Onondaga, I get the sense that Homer was at best a little bossy and at worst supercilious. Of course, I could be wrong about that impression because at that time, farmers were expected to be much more scientifically and mechanically inclined. So maybe farmers were held to such high standards in that regard that most readers were on board with Homer's authoritarian streak. Now there's one other thing on that same page I want to share with you. This is from an article titled, North Manlius Items. We fear your interesting traveling correspondent in his sketches of Onondaga in describing our place has committed the same fault which he finds with some of the enumerators of 1865. He gives us a grist and saw mill that are not to be found. His account would have been correct three years ago before the torch of the incendiary laid them in ruins, never probably to rise again, as the premises have been purchased within a short time past by parties opposed to building. Your correspondent also fails to notice our two churches, Cheese Factory, State Guard, Armory, and some other buildings. We presume, however, no material damage will result from the neglect. I just can't get enough of the snide drollery of the letters that these people wrote to the editor. It goes to show a couple of things. First, that even someone as assiduous as Homer D.L. Sweet wasn't perfect and that there were bound to be errors in a project as extensive as the one he was undertaking. Second, note the bit about the torch of the incendiary. At that time, there were a lot of fires and a lot of articles about how those fires were supposedly caused by an incendiary. The other day it hit me, hey, I really haven't seen many articles that confirmed that accusation.
So now I'm wondering, were people fully aware of the risk of spontaneous combustion at that time? Maybe a lot of those fires that they assumed to be started by incendiaries were actually a result of spontaneous combustion. Alright, that's more than enough of an introduction from me. Now, moving on to the interview. After, a word from our sponsor. Mr. Homer D.L. Sweet's volume of poems, Twilight Hours in the Adirondacks, has at last made its appearance in a complete form. The delay, we understand, is chargeable to the New York binders. The volume is neatly bound in imitation Morocco and is embellished with a camp scene in the Adirondacks, an illuminated title page and a photograph of the author surrounded with heraldic blazonry, intended, we suppose, to intimate that he is what the Spaniards call a hijo de algo, a son of somebody. The work can be obtained at Wincoops and Leonard's. And we're back. On with the interview. Okay, I'm here with historian Ruth Hotelling. Mm-hmm. Thank you. At the Pompey Historical Society talking about Homer D.L. Sweet. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming. <laughs> so, what are you passionate about? Oh, I like to learn about the local history, and I had taught for several years in the Fabius Pompey school system, so with my second graders, I decided I had to learn about Pompey. Yeah. Because I grew up in the northern end, but very close to Janesville, so I knew Janesville's history really cold and didn't know too much about my own town. So once I I started teaching, I really started to dwell in on it, and eventually our former historian conned me into Uh becoming (laughs) historian. Uh Uh-huh. A little bait and switch. So I've learned a lot, and... uh, a lot that I didn't know about. And the wow. town has an amazing history, and the early settlers produced quite outstanding individuals that spread across the country, and they have an immense impact on our history. And a lot of them went to the Pompey Academy at Pompey Hill. That's interesting. The very first things out of your mouth made me think that our reasons for developing a passion for history are similar. It was personal for you. Mm-hmm. It, it, you wanted to transfer something of what you were discovering to your second graders. Correct. For me, it was genealogy. I wanted to honor my Uncle Hugh, after whom I'm named. He died in World War II. And at first, genealogy was merely a means to an end because I wanted to efficiently contact as many relatives as I could to get as many stories about him as I could. And as I did my genealogy, that became an end of itself. And then I discovered that I had ancestors in Syracuse, and then Syracuse got interesting to me, and that blossomed into this project. So here I am. How would you describe the connection between Pompey and Syracuse around the time of Homer? Uh, It was very important because uh, there was only four towns in Onondaga County, Mm -hmm. and Pompey was one of them. The other was Marcellus, Manless, and Lysander. And so they met at Pompey Hill, the four town supervisors did, Mm -hmm. and they decided that Pompey Hill would be a good site for the first academy. Mm-hmm. And so the valley probably actually got its academy up before Pompey Hill, but they were meeting in small mm-hmm. wooden structures. Now, 
I'm sure that the word academy meant something very different then that it does yes. now. Can you tell me about that? Um, an academy is really and truly a high school in uh-huh. our terminology today. Uh-huh. And um, they came from all over mm-hmm. to, to go to the Pompey Academy. And um, they would stay with people at Pompey Hill mm-hmm. and then um, for the season. And it was very interesting because I just looked at his school time that's recorded in the Town and Profile books on the town of Pompey that they did during the bicentennial celebration. And he tended to attend school more in the springtime. Well, you're talking about Homer Sweet now. Yes. Yeah, yeah, in, in the springtime. Yeah. And this must be the fall season somewhat okay. because maybe it was harvest time. Okay. And they needed him more for harvest time than they did in planting time. Yeah. And so I found that kind of interesting. One of the things that fascinates me the most about that era is the relationship between rural and urban. I gather from a lot of the newspaper stories that I read that just like today, there was a certain tension between the city folk Mm -hmm. and the country folk. Mm -hmm. But unlike today, I feel like Syracuse was much more dependent on the agrarian economy. Oh, than yes. it is now yes. because there's things like uh have you heard of the mechanics fair no it's I don't think so. not what it sounds like uh this is has come up a lot in the newspapers that i've been reading from early 1868 it went on for weeks and weeks and weeks and on the surface it looks like oh these are mechanics bringing their mechanical devices in to showcase there was some of that to be sure but there was also a lot of just it was more of a bazaar, and it included a lot of uh, agrarian Fire. products like wool, uh, weaving, uh, arts and crafts, and historical artifacts. It was a sort of bazaar of, of uh, just oddities that people brought in, as well as local manufacture. Mm-hmm. But between the Mechanics Fair and all the other references to fairs, I feel like the economy was vastly more dependent on what the farmers and the rural people produced than nowadays. Well, when you look at the 1800 census, um, Ponte covered a very large area. Uh-huh. And so some of those families now are tied to Janesville or they're tied to Lafayette. Um, and Syracuse was kind of non-existence mm. at the beginning because it's down in a hole and malaria <laughs> and you yeah. name it. And so it develops after these four towns really get going and, and have their populations established. Oh, I didn't realize that. So when when would they have been established? Oh, right offhand, I don't know. It's, it's a little later. Uh-huh. So Syracuse wasn't really established as... Syracuse until what around the eighteen fifties or so? No, they were before that. Because oh, okay. because people um get established at Pompey Hill and then some you see a lot of the prominent families move into Syracuse and uh-huh. Syracuse is becoming more vibrant. I don't know and, why the year eighteen thirty two is popping up in my head all of a sudden. It, Does that is would, that a meaningful be, date? It'd was be that about that time or in the 20s. Like the towns of Salina and Geddes uh, mm-hmm. coalesced mm-hmm. into Syracuse? Yeah. Okay. So. Okay. So at that time, Pompey, if somebody said Pompey, that would have referred to an area, what, between, say, from Jamesville to Casanova? Uh, pretty much. 
and Lafayette, this side of Lafayette was part of Pompey. Right. Because right. they broke that away in 1825. Oh, okay. So speaking of 1868, one of the reasons that year is so exciting to me is that's when the Midland Railroad was just getting on its legs, financially speaking. There was very little physical development done, but the town bonding had gotten well underway, and people were were really anxious to get a trunk line going from this area to New York City so they wouldn't be dependent on the Hudson River, which froze in the winter. And I'm, I'm fascinated with this because I feel like what Homer Sweet did was a reflection of the same industrial tendencies that were that were sweeping over Syracuse at that time because what else you see in 1868 is all these railroad meetings just the papers are full of them and I get a sense of almost sweaty desperation at the thought of oh we don't want to lose out to some neighboring area who might end up getting a railroad and then they'll develop and will be left behind there was a sense of uh Keeping up with the Joneses. Mm-hmm. Do you do you get that sense from your research? Uh, well, we're kind of the abandoned town because we really didn't get a real good piece of the railroad in uh-huh. Orin, near Manless. That's still part of Pompey. The Orin hamlet was, mm-hmm. and they got a train station there. Oh. Uh, do you know what what railroad that was? Right off the top of my head, no. Yeah. But we've got it in our books. I know some of the ones that go through Syracuse, uh, and I know the Midland pretty well, but I'm not really up on all the railroad stops. And so the other closest railroad would have been Lafayette and Octavia. Oh, so Pompey so was sort of an island farmers, in between. The okay. farmers had to take their produce to either Orne or to... Uh, Tivia and Lafayette, or uh, New Woodstock, which is kind of a jaunt. Yeah. Fabius eventually had an area in Tully. Okay. So they, they had to travel to get their product to market. So in other words, Homer Sweet was coming up at a time when that competition that I mentioned may have existed, but Pompey was just just sort of starting to lose out to other towns as far as the railroads go. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Okay. And they so, lost out for the canal because we don't really have any yeah. water source real close. Yeah. So do you know what got him interested in surveying? Not right offhand. I imagine because it was a job. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and he became very good at it, and he definitely did the 1860 map, which we have on the other wall. Okay, I'm going to read this summary from Volume 3 of J. Roy Dodge's An Historical View of Pompey Hill, New York, because there's an excerpt in here that mentions his surveying. Homer D. L. Sweet, 1826 to 1892. Homer DeLois? Homer DeLois Sweet, which he chose to sign as Homer D. L., was interested in many subjects, and his obituary says that in early life he was a clerk in a village store, a school teacher, singer, post office clerk, sailor, lightning rod agent, minstrel troop manager, telegrapher, and finally assistant to a surveyor. 
The variety of Homer's accomplishments can be illustrated by other examples. When he was 29 years old at Syracuse's second mechanical fair, there we go, uh, of December 1855, he was awarded a prize for a topographical drawing of a tunnel under the Niagara River. So that was in 1855, yeah. 13 years before the era I'm talking about, and he was 29, so he was already interested in drawing and surveying. So he was coming up at a time when, correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like this, again, was a, a reflection of the industrial keeping up with the Joneses mm -hmm. of the time because what I, what I see when I look at maps and city directories is that same sort of, oh, we want to make our best showing, we want to put our best leg forward, we want the world to know what's here so they can come on the new railroads and spend money and we can grow as a city and get a leg up on the surrounding areas. When he moved to Syracuse, uh -huh. when he leaves Pompey and he's in Syracuse, I can see how he'd be very involved in that okay. type of an attitude uh -huh. because he'd want his brothers in industry. His uh, brothers? Yes. Where, where was he? They started in Syracuse. Oh, okay. Uh, the kid brother, William Avery, started out in Waterville uh -huh. uh, making plows and size and stuff oh. and then he wanted to expand so his brothers uh john edson who was the mm -hmm. professor at cornell university mm -hmm. and homer helped give him money so he could start his business in syracuse uh -huh. and he started out making farm implements but then he went into iron and uh -huh. steel homer gave him money Yes. So Homer was making that good money as a surveyor? Well, or? enough that the two brothers could kick in and get him going. Huh. Interesting. And, you know, they collaborated and helped him get his business going. And he, William Avery is actually the forerunner to uh, Crucible Steel. Oh. So. Okay. Uh, from, from making plows. Yeah. All that arose. Yeah. Huh. And so that would help justify his interest in the railroad and that. And then Homer eventually, in the foundation of the Onondaga Historical Association in 1864, he is like one of the directors, and then he huh. becomes the secretary, and he's the secretary of that organization for years. So you may actually want to go to the Onondaga Historical Association and see what kind of immense file they probably have on I'm actually Homer's going suite. there today. Oh, After good. this, good. I'm not going to have too much time, unfortunately. I don't think I'll get to Homer. But when I return, he's one of the main subjects I want to research. Because I would think in their genealogy uh, floor, they'll have a file on him. Yeah. Historic Headlines will be right back after this message. The Great Wilderness of New York The Great Wilderness of New York and a sketch of the border settlements compiled from the actual surveys by Homer D.L. Sweet of Syracuse and Edwin A. Merritt of Potsdam. We have been shown a few of the advance sheets of this work, which is to be published by Wood, Parsons, and Company of Albany in a few days. It is engraved on stone, 36 sheets, 
10 inches square, equal to a wall map 5 feet square, beautifully done in the best style, the lettering plain and distinct, the typography finely and clearly cut, and the line work bold and definite. This map was made, as the title page indicates, from actual surveys. Mr. Sweet procured copies of all the original maps on file in the various offices in that part of the state, including those of Albany, besides many from the hands of local surveyors. To compile these required great care and judgment, for the surface of the country is the roughest in the state, highly magnetic. Some portions of it surveyed originally more than 100 years ago, which has occasioned many laps and goves some careless surveying, and some rascally. Township lines only are given, which are fixed and definite, in place of county and town lines, which are shadowy and fleeting. He has retained the baptismal names of these townships in all cases where known, and among those which we think would still be good names for towns are Shakespeare, Portia, Industry, Enterprise, etc., etc., Mr. Sweet was employed for years by J. H. French on his large map of the state and traveled pretty thoroughly in every town that is represented on the map, not township. And most of the hills and mountains are delineated as he saw them. Mr. Merritt, who is associated with Mr. Sweet, is a St. Lawrence County man born and bred, a civil engineer and surveyor, has surveyed large portions of the wilderness and published small maps of portions of it. He has aided Mr. S. with material and has had charge of the guidebook, which is to accompany the map, of which we shall speak more definitely when we have seen it. Mr. Merritt is at present attached to Governor Fenton's staff as Quartermaster General. We now return to our program. Getting back to something you said about, well, it was a job, speaking of his surveying, I feel like what I'm coming to see in my research is that there's a, there's a tension between my own cynical side and my more optimistic, what's the word I'm looking for, lofty <laughs> side. And depending on how you look at a subject, you can come away with very, very different pictures. Uh, for instance, I mean, if I were to look at it through the lens of that sort of, well, we want to keep up with the Joneses and we want industry, we want money, money, money for the city, you get a very different flavor of someone's life than if you looked at it through, oh, this is a young man who loved the surrounding countryside. Oh, he, did. he loved to draw and he loved to showcase it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think people make a mistake when they think, only one ver- one version is true because I think the cynical interpretation is always a possibility. It's always a, a valid lens, but also people were obviously very proud of what they did and they loved doing it. So I think both things are true. And his maps are terrific. I yeah. mean, I just rely on his is, 1860 is the... map and uh-huh. I rely on his 1874 Atlas of Anaconda uh-huh. County. And this is the original 1874. Sorry, when you say original 1874, tell me what you mean, because I, I think well, of the original... Well, because I have a copy of the 1874 Atlas here. Oh, oh okay. But what's the and, difference between the... Eight, wasn't there an 1860 yes, map? Yes, and, and the 1860 maps around okay. the wall Okay, we can go take a look yes. at that and then come back to the and, microphone. And but. I love both of them because he the concept that he used is the same. Uh-huh. Every property 
owner's name is on those maps. Uh huh. And it's so terrific when you're doing family history because then you can find out a close proximity where they lived and you can actually maybe pinpoint so you can take people even to that land so they can stand on it and have that tremendous feeling. My Revolutionary War soldier came to Pompey and settled here. Yeah. Now this brings me to a subject that I'm interested in. People who went into business for themselves in an industry like surveying and making directories, like Boyd's Directory mm-hmm. of Syracuse. Mm-hmm. What I'm gleaning from the newspaper articles that came out around the time he was making his directory, it makes me think he was really good at organizing people and sending them out and collecting information. It wasn't just him. It's just that he was a good manager and a good delegator, and he figured out how to economically bring in a lot of information so that he could make a quality product, and it wasn't cost prohibitive. Did Homer have competition who didn't do it as well as he did? I don't know. I I've never looked into that, but his maps are just so great. You see the businesses, and you see the cemeteries, and you see where the schools are, the churches, everything and is I've just s- placed. They're just immense it's amazing the rivers yeah if there's railroads they are there and it's just an amazing job that he did yeah and i've seen enough bad maps to know that that must have been expensive to do and so i'm just curious yeah so i'm curious the about the hours but he loved occasionally you'll find writings where it'll say how he loved being out in the open right and this is some of the time he felt he spent the best was when he was out doing these yeah. maps. Just to be clear, he wasn't one of these rich kids who no. just did it and regardless of making profit. He made a profit out of this. So despite the fact that it was so high quality and obviously took tremendous amounts of time, this turned a profit. So that means there was a demand for just this level of detail that he provided. Mm-hmm. Because there's your business directory for Syracuse. Oh, you've got the, you've got the business directory right in the same book as the atlas. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I haven't seen that before. And each town sometimes there's a little, like on the 1860 map, there's a little mm-hmm. block that lists the businesses mm-hmm. for that town, mm-hmm. the important ones. Yeah. So I mean, there's just an immense information that you gleam from the atlas and yeah. his 1860 map. Do you know what kind of a team he had? I mean, it wasn't just him, was it? No, but I think it was a small, it really? wasn't a lot of people. Huh. I want to make sure I don't forget to read this to you. So I want to do that now. This is that article that I mentioned. It's one of the sword and pen letters from okay. Moses Summers, who, for the listeners, Moses Summers was a publisher of the Syracuse Daily Standard, both before and after the Civil War. And during the war, he volunteered, he went off to fight, Mm -hmm. and he wrote letters back to the Standard while he was away. So it provided a narrative of someone who was fighting the war and was on the march from place to place. And this provided the entire community with a first-person account Mm -hmm. of that life. Okay, so this is from Syracuse Daily Standard, Syracuse, Tuesday morning, April 5th, 1864. 
Sword and Pen, Headquarters, 149th Regiment. I believe it's Anderson, although the copy was very blurry. Anderson, Alabama, March 27, 1864. Now, there's a lot of detail that he gives about rumors, about enemy troop mm-hmm. movements, mm-hmm. about how terrible the railroads are down there. He was an engineer, so he got kind of persnickety about mm-hmm. bad engineering, bad design, things like that. Uh, so I'm going to skip ahead to the section about Homer Sweet. I received yesterday from Homer D.L. Sweet a package of extras containing the proceedings of the meeting of the Onondaga Historical Society on the presentation of the old flag of our regiment and the reception of a new flag and guidons. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. It's a, it's a flag holder. Including a report of the remarks of the speakers on that occasion, together with an interesting and highly complimentary poetical effusion from Mr. Sweet's pen. I have already complied with the request to distribute the copies among our boys, and I can assure you they are read with delight and gratification. The patriotic and complimentary remarks of the speakers give us the best possible assurance that neither ourselves nor the Union cause is forgotten in Syracuse, and the men of the 149th will be nerved by these proceedings to renewed efforts in the noble cause to which they have devoted themselves. And you can tell he was very educated. Yeah. Because yeah. I have a set of letters from the war from uh-huh. a local family. Yeah. And they're farm boys. And so the letters are entirely different. But you do get the flavor <laughs> of the war. Yeah. But yeah. it's... I have a hard time condensing my podcasts because if I find an article that's at all related to a subject, even if it's not that interesting in its own right... I want to read it just because the flavor of the language. It's so eloquent. I love the way they wrote. Even when it's ridiculously uh, overwrought, Mm -hmm. I love the language. So getting back to the war, one of the things that I am still shocked by is the partisan nature of Syracuse, despite despite it being this far north we still had massive discord as to the, the opinions about the war. There was the Syracuse Daily Courier and Union, which was known as one of the most vile copperhead newspapers in the country, which was, was actually really reassuring to me to find that after I'd been reading the Courier for a while, because I'd been saying to myself, my God, was it like this in every town? Turns out, no, the Syracuse Courier happened to be one of the worst. So what was Pompey like in that regard during the war? Was there a lot of disagreement with what Lincoln was doing? I don't believe so, because the volunteer rate for a small town was very immense. They Uh seemed to just come forth and... uh, they would go around to the hamlets, uh, the respected members of the community, mm-hmm. to uh, raise the troops, mm-hmm. and um, they seemed to just step forth. And yeah. a good number of our boys went, and they always met their quota. Oh. And I think they are probably, I think this area and the whole was. They were probably against slavery. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think 
there was a lot of Protestants that attended churches uh -huh. that were definitely um, abolitionists in nature. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, but there probably was the mixture still. Sure. I'm um, looking for that. Ah, here we go. October 29th, 1866 was the Soldiers and Sailors Convention. Now this, you couldn't really tell just from the name what that was, but I read the article and it was essentially a Republican convention. Uh, Republicans that at that time being the pro-emancipation, right. anti-slavery, pro-Lincoln party. And that's when I started to realize that he was most emphatically on that side of, you know, anti-slavery, pro-emancipation, because he read his, what was it, um, he, ah, he sang campaign songs mm -hmm. at a Republican meeting, he sang a comedic song at the Soldiers and Sailors convention that I just mentioned, uh, yeah, that was, all, all of those were in September and October of 1866. So that must have been leading up to... What would that have been leading up to? It wasn't a presidential election. The presidential election was in 1868. So September, October of 1866 would have been... What? That was after the war. Yeah, it's after the war. But it it's wasn't, reconstruction. But it wasn't near a local election. Uh, anyway, that's yeah. something I can look up independently. Yeah. Speaking of Homer's songs and poetry... I haven't read a lot of them because most of the newspaper articles, actually, I think all of the newspaper articles that I've read mention him singing and writing poetry, but the ones that you showed me just now are the first ones where I've actually seen the content. Oh, and they're very long Yeah, and quite poetic, yeah. actually, and flowery. You don't think of this guy that's outdoors all the mm -hmm. time doing maps, being, yeah. <laughs> being this poet, but he yeah. is. And he loved it. He would um, try to get his points across doing poems. What would you suggest is the best one to read? Well, I like several of his. I even like his Adirondacks ones. Uh -huh. But I like the one he did on Fort Ticonderoga, and then I like the one that, because his grandfather was at the surrender of Fort Ticonderoga in the Revolutionary War, yeah. and so that had meaning to him, yeah. and so that's a good one. And he also um, did a nice uh, poem about growing up in Pompey. Uh, he was an older person, and he's writing back how he remembers life was when he was 12 years old growing up in Pompey. I saw that one, and now I can't put my finger on it. Where did oh, it go? It's in volume one. Oh, okay, that's why. That. There we go. There we go. Pompey Hill in 1838. When Homer DeLois Sweet was 65 years old in 1891, he composed a poem entitled, When Eldad... Eldad? Yeah. When Eldad Left the Singing, narrating life at Pompey Hill as he remembered it in 1838 when he was 12 years old. We have been unable to ascertain, despite a fairly thorough search, the last name of Eldad. I write these reminiscences of fifty years ago. As near as I can recollect, I may be fast or slow. So place a little sliding scale to what I have to state, for I was but a little boy in 1838. 
Our supervisor was John Smith and Calvin Ball Town Clerk, while Asa Wells took care of those too ill or old to work. Will Webb was acting constable and Redfield kept hotel when Levi Wells was made esquire, then Amos rung the bell. The dean, he was a shoemaker, and did not preach or pray. The butler was a blacksmith, and he labored every day. The bishop was a tailor, and he made fine suits for bow. The baker was a merchant, and sold calicoes and hoes. H. Wheaton was the postmaster, and dealt in merchandise. His brother, Charles Augustus, was a model man in size. Ed Dawson was the active clerk and always did the mailing, where little boys were not allowed to go behind the railing. (laughs) Old Mrs. Handy's tavern stand was next door south of there. Its architecture was not grand, a tumble-down affair. It was too handy for some men who never could get rich. They spent their money and their time in swapping lies and sitch. Oh, wow, it goes on for another whole page. So I'm I'm going to get a copy of this, and I'll include it in the show notes. But that gives you a sense of Homer Sweet's poetry. And this, I think this confirms the sense that I got from the newspaper articles, was that he had a delightful combination of joy, but also not taking himself 100% seriously. Mm-hmm. I think he had a nice um, playful quality about him. He just, he liked... He, he genuinely wanted to contribute to the causes and the efforts that he was engaged in, but he wasn't pompous mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. So, sketches of Onondaga, that's what brought me here. In 1868, the Standard published these accounts by Homer of all these towns in Onondaga. Now, he got all of that information while he was doing the surveying, right? Mm-hmm, I would so, say so, yeah. So the sketches of Onondaga were a byproduct of his surveying and of his natural pride in his surroundings and desire to share those. And I haven't had the privilege of reading too many of those. Unfortunately, the newspapers that I have access to through FultonHistory.com are super blurry, and I haven't yet taken the time to transcribe them because it's going to take a lot of time. Because when you sit with newspaper copy that blurry, you've got to you've got to ponder over every word. I'm hoping today to see the the physical originals at the Onondaga Historical Association, and they very well may have them because they yeah. have a lot of the original newspapers. And they also, another source would be the uh, Syracuse Public Library. Mm -hmm. They have a terrific history uh, floor with genealogy. Yeah, I've made good use of their microfilm collection. Unfortunately, one thing I recently discovered is that, at least in the case of the Syracuse papers that I've been reading, the source of Mm FultonHistory.com is the same as the source of the microfilm at the OCPL. Okay. So... Although the microfilm at the OCPL is way, way crisper, any gaps or errors in copying will be carried through to the, mm-hmm. to the mic. It's, they're, they're essentially the same. Now, supposedly but, the Post Standard now has a site that uh-huh. you can go to and you can read early newspapers on their site. You may want to try that. I didn't because know I that. Because I think they have some of the early journals there, too. I didn't know that. I'm so, surprised I didn't hear that through the Syracuse well, History Group on, on Facebook. I've only been on it once myself. Huh. 
I'll and, have to check that and out. I forgot how I got on there. Now uh-huh. I got to find out how to get on there again. So it's funny, like coming at Homer Sweet from my perspective of trying to gain a sense of, of what people who read newspapers thought about the world and about the people around them. I get the sense that the sketches of Onondaga are a big deal, but the more I spread out and read the material you've given me, I'm feeling like that was just more of a little blip, and his maps and surveying and poetry and songs and community-related things were more prominent. Is that right? I would say so, because he's interested in all the topics of the time that are important. Uh, I mean, he gets involved in temperance, and uh, he's involved in the war effort and trying to raise funds for those soldiers. Yeah, I want to read from that section on paying for the war. This is, again, from that same third volume of J. Roy Dodge's book. This is an account of an event in 1864. Soldiers Relief Festival at Pompey Hill. We had the pleasure Friday afternoon and evening of attending the Soldiers' Relief Festival given by the ladies of Pompey at Pompey Hill. The ladies took entire possession of Seeger's Hotel and spread tables for substantial meals in the dining room. Cutting to the section on Homer Sweet, The pleasures of the evening were enhanced by music from Professor Porter's Melodeon, accompanied by the voices of many of the fair denizens of Pompey. Homer D.L. Sweet, Esquire, favored the company by singing Longfellow's Sinking of the Cumberland and a couple of his own inimitable songs and by reading a poem on Boarding Around. Huh. So, tell me again about the Sinking of the Cumberland. I'm not familiar with that. That was the Monitor and the Merrimack, the first two ironclads. uh The Merrimack, the day before the battle between the two ironclads, had attacked many of the northern vessels that were in the waters there. Mm-hmm. And the Cumberland was one of those, and the Merrimack sunk it Oh, the day okay. before the battle between the Monitor and the Merrimack. Uh-huh. And so that was very important to um, yeah. the history of the time. Huh. And so I can see why he would be impressed with that, just like he was, as I said before, wrote that terrific poem about Fort Ticonderoga and the surrender because it had meaning to him. One of the most surprising things, again, to me, is the degree to which the politics were polarized at that time. We complain about how polarized politics are today. I don't think of the North at that time as being politically polarized, I don't think of the North as having a large demographic who were against Lincoln and against the war, but there absolutely were. So Homer singing his songs and doing his poems, that had real potent meaning to him and to a lot of people. But on the whole, I would say the majority of central New York was pro-Lincoln. Oh, they yes, they were. And, to give you some background, this podcast episode that I'm just about to put out right now, is this will be in the past when this airs, 1868, mayoral election, John A. Green, one of the most notorious copperheads in the country. This guy actually 
publicly threatened armed insurrection against federal troops. Mm -hmm. That's how anti-Lincoln this guy was. He was the Democratic nomination for Syracuse mayor in 1868. He lost by 123 votes. Mm. That was less than 2% of the vote he lost by. And it's astonishing the amount of ink on both sides that was spilt trying to get their guy elected and just lambasting the other guy. It's It still makes my head spin. For days and days leading up to the election, the newspapers were full of how horrible this guy was and how he represented the very worst of the worst of the Democratic Party and how anti-Lincoln and and how vile and pro-slavery and anti-emancipation he was. And at the end of it, he lost by 123 votes. The majority of the population was absolutely pro-Lincoln, as you said. And just like today, people separated that aspect of a person in their minds from the practicality. Because this guy was a businessman and they felt, well, he'll be good for Syracuse mm-hmm. business, and that's more or less all a lot of people cared about. Well, we did have the faction that, because we had Homer Horatio Seymour, who was the governor uh-huh. during the draft riots. Yeah. And he was a Pompey boy, but he was a Democrat. Wait, Horatio Seymour was a Pompey boy? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, he went to the academy. I've, I've and- been talking about Horatio Seymour on the podcast a lot, because when he was governor in 64, right? Well, he was governor in 62 and 63. Yeah, and then again... Uh, no, right after that, there was a Republican again. Was was he governor again later in 68 or something like that? Well, he, anyway. ra- he ran against um, Grant for the presidency. Yes, yes. Okay, here's what I'm thinking of. It was in 63 when he was governor... He is the one who appointed that guy, John A. Green, that I mentioned, as a brigadier general in command of the northern frontier because people were worried about rebel incursions from Canada. And so this gives you a sense of the politics of John A. Green because he was Seymour's guy. He was super anti-Lincoln, and he put him in that place, according to the Republican newspapers, just to make trouble for the Republicans and for Lincoln. And that's the only time that Pompey did not support uh, Seymour was when he ran for president against Grant. Really? But were they supportive of him as governor? Yes. Oh, okay. Okay, so I guess his politics weren't... Because we have a banner that's Uh (laughs) anti-Seymour when he's running for president. Wow. Is that something you can show me? Not right offhand, because it's in storage. Oh, okay. But we do have it. Okay. Wow. (sighs) I did have it up when I was doing the Civil War, and we had it on display. Yeah. Yeah. We'll be right back after this brief commercial message. New Publications Misters Weed, Parsons, and Company of this city have just published a map of the great wilderness of New York, and a sketch of the border settlements. Compiled by Homer D. L. Sweet of Syracuse and Edwin A. Merritt of Potsdam. 
This is one of the most valuable issues of the kind ever made in our state, and will prove indispensable to all who have occasion to desire familiarity with the vast and comparatively unknown region in question. It is printed in 36 sections, each 10 inches square, and embraced in a portfolio so as to make carriage convenient. The map is compiled from actual surveys. It gives the location of every road, lake, creek, pond, or mountain, the residence and name of each settler, and every other point of the slightest interest or value. Mr. Sweet, one of the authors, visited every town north of the Mohawk for the purpose of procuring all surveys which have been made during the last hundred years, which have been employed in the accurate and thorough observations, the results of which are here embodied. General Merritt, who is well known in Albany as a member of Governor Fenton's staff, is himself familiar, from personal observations, with a large portion of this wilderness region, and thus has added the advantages of practical observation to those of scientific skill. Beside this, the evidence of the most experienced hunters, guides, and trappers in the North Woods has been brought in requisition to prevent the possibility of mistakes. The result of this vast labor and great expense has been the production of a work which will be pronounced incomparable by all who are familiar with the subject. The map is to be sold by subscription. We now return to our program. Oh, don't want to forget. Homer Sweet's book on the Adirondacks. Twilight Hours in the Adirondacks. What can you tell me about that? What brought him to write about the Adirondacks? Well, he was up there. He got a job after he had done his 1860 map and his uh -huh. 1874 atlas. He got a job surveying the Adirondack Mountains. So while he was up uh -huh. there, he started to write poetry because when he's done surveying, he's got uh -huh. time. So they figured at the end of the day, he would just sit down and start writing. Uh -huh. And it's kind of interesting because he would describe the sky or whatever. And I don't know if you want to read any of this. Oh, but yes. This is some excerpts from his. And they published a book afterwards. Yeah. Syracuse Standard, November 19th, 1893. He sang of nature in eccentric but meritorious verse. This is under the subject, Mr. Sweet's Poetry. Some literary remains. His Twilight Hours in the Adirondacks contain some of his most pleasing verses. The late Homer D. L. Sweet was a man of a strange and high-strung character. Living as he did through almost every variety of life, he was at heart a poet and a poet of nature. When he was out in the wild woods with his surveying instruments and his knapsack, he was then in his happiest frame of mind because he was in an environment which he thoroughly understood. It was during a camping expedition in the Adirondacks that he penned the 7,777 lines which make up the volume of poems which he left. It is called Twilight Hours in the Adirondacks. It was published in 1870 by Wincoops and Leonard of this city. Much of the verse is written in a purely narrative style, a record of the everyday doings of the party. Some consist of the stories and traditions of the region, and some is fanciful to a degree. 
Often the style is lofty and inspired, and in not a few lines there are evidences of rare genius. His views of nature were lofty and serene, and many of his verses breathe with a true spirit of pastoral poetry. This is a fair example. The sky above is bare and broad and blue. No cloud is there to mar or beautify it. Around the horizon lies in creamy hue a fading belt save where the sunbeams dye it. Below the grand old mountains intervene, all clothed in garments of perpetual green. Or this. Tis twilight hour, the sun has just descended, into a notch between two rugged mountains. The last rays, lingering, kiss the unoffended, rill as it blushes, two of the sweetest fountains, that burst in beauty from the bluff behind us, of laughing, dancing, chattering girls reminds us. Often his heart was sore and his facile pen dragged at his tardy thoughts. Possibly at such a time he wrote this. Dear friends, why will you urge me thus? You know, you know I cannot sing. Your presence seems an incubus, a strange and most uncommon thing. I used to carol like a bird when breathed I free my native air, but now my voice can scarce be heard, my heart is sinking in despair. He approached nature in all its moods. How beautiful is night in such seclusion, how sweetly silent is the earth and air, how bright the stars of hope in such profusion, how dark the earth, a soul in blank despair. Or this. The breeze is fresh and cool, and through the spruce is sighing like a maiden for her lover. The noisy stream makes not the least excuse, but brawls and babbles rolling round and over. Occasionally, some of Mr. Sweet's synonyms were unique, for instance, speaking of a forest stream. It moves mid many maple sugary stones with just the flash and color of boiled cider. Here is a character sketch of one of the members of the camping party who might easily be suspected to be the writer himself. He talks quite easily upon geography and gives a little sprinkling of geology, is master of this wilderness choreography, and shows at least a zeal for rare zoology. Beside a smattering of mineralogy, and a taste for tracing genealogy. Mr. Sweet had a very delicate vein of humor, a humor which is well shown in some verse called the rickety style. When I was very young indeed, I really thought of marriage, till one unlucky incident gave all my hopes miscarriage. I fell in love with a buxom lass and sparked her quite a while. I often think I'd have married her, but for an old rickety style. This lass was very fond of Beau, whom she was fond of jilting, which I knew not when I engaged to see her home from quilting. We laughed and talked and walked along, I reckon, about a mile, until we reached her father's yard and that old rickety style. To aid her o'er I lent my hand, no bow could e'er be bolder, 
and yet in spite of all my pains she tumbled on my shoulder. Of course I felt some slight chagrin, for she had smashed my tile, and silently but heartily I blamed that rickety style. I caught the maiden in my arms and tried to do it gently, while she was breathing in my face and looking so intently. Her little heart beat on my breast, her lips did sweetly smile, and so I kissed the smiles from them and blessed the rickety style. But once upon a moonlight eve, when I had been belated, she was returning from her walk, I saw that she was mated. And when they reached that ticklish spot, there, just as slick as aisle, I saw her stumble, trip, and fall, right over that rickety stile. Well, he was there as I had been, and so, of course, he caught her. Then he hugged her, and she hugged him, exactly as I'd taught her. While they were taking great delight, you may bet my blood did bile. And ever since that awful day, I've blamed that rickety style. So are there any more stories that leap to your mind that you want to tell about Homer Sweet? Well, I think it's interesting that he he kept joint interests in the farm, the family farm, for mm-hmm. a number of years, even though he was not involved so much anymore. Mm-hmm. His older brother Wheaton ran the farm. Mm-hmm. You'll read a lot of things about how they had this pleasant wooded area where they had church picnic after church picnic uh-huh. on the farm. Uh, they had a beautiful um, barn mm-hmm. that their father had built. And we've got drawings of it in our town and profile mm-hmm. book. And it's surprising to me that they were sheep farmers. I grew up on a dairy farm, so, but my dad early on, his father did have sheep. And so uh-huh. she, there was a period of time when the sheep industry was important in the town of Pompey. There was a lot of uh, sheep produced to produce wool. Yeah, a lot of the newspaper articles that I've found on him mention that he was involved in the Sheep and Wool Growers Association. I think there Correct. was more than one, wasn't there? Oh, well, state, there was a state yes, sheep and, breeders and, and wool growers. Be, and then probably there'd be a local one for Onondaga County, and I think he was very involved in that. Yeah, and I think he was almost, I think you mentioned that he was the secretary for that. Yeah, let me see. Uh, one, uh State Sheep Breeders and Wool Growers, Sheep and Wool Growers Association. Oh, those are just two days apart in 1870, uh, March 1870, so that must have been for the same organization. Oh, gosh, I've got to read this to you. This was so funny. The water question. Oh, about. One of my favorite things to encounter in these newspapers are the snide, snarky, exchanges of letters like it's very much like today's Facebook somebody will write something and then somebody else will write a letter the next day in response to that and this flame war will develop and because the language was so much more ornate it's just delightful to read and in this case somebody wrote about a watershed he was an engineer and they, they were pondering several options for getting water to Syracuse, mm-hmm. I believe. Hold on, let me find it. He supposedly built the, some of the reservoirs. 
for the water system. Here we go. This is from September 2nd of 1870. It's a letter that Homer Sweet wrote to the Syracuse Daily Journal. The Water Question. To the editor of the Syracuse Journal. As the fact which I stated a few days since did not convince taxpayer, I will try his own figures. He says in one communication that Skinny Atlas Lake has a surface of at least 20 square miles in extent. This is 12,800 acres. In his last article, he says it has 50 square miles of watershed to fill it. This is 32,000 acres to fill a basin 7 feet in depth or 80,000 acres of water 1 foot deep. The state authorities have once really reduced the water this depth and have control of that amount. Allowing that two-thirds of the rainfall takes place between the 1st of December and 1st of May, and that every drop reaches the lake, it would only be 64,000 acres of water one foot deep to fill 89,000 acres, for the average rainfall is only 36 inches per year. Does taxpayer understand his own problem? The facts of the case are these. Skinny Atlas Lake has been used just as taxpayer proposes by raising a dam and cutting down the outlet seven feet so that the state controlled the water for that depth, and at times they have guarded the gates with armed men so that the water should not be wasted. In spite of these precautions, the Jordan level has often lacked for water, and the Owasco and Otisco reservoirs have been constructed at immense expense to supply the deficiency. Would the state engineers have done this if they could have obtained another 4 million gallons with 25 feet of pine plank? I think not. Taxpayer says that the simple problem is to save the surplus produced in one part of the year for consumption and use in the remaining part. That is not all. You have to know what your storage capacity is and the area of your watershed, the average percentage and the minimum rainfall, not the average and the maximum of evaporation, before you can begin to make any kind of a calculation. And engineers do not guess at those things. Very respectfully, Homer D.L. Sweet. So it's a lot of engineering jargon that he actually got printed in the newspaper, ending with this wonderfully snarky, engineers do not guess at those things. So he's basically saying, shut up, you don't know what you're talking about, don't mess with me, I'm an engineer. <laughs> I love that. See, and I always think of his brother, the professor, being more the engineer and more uh -huh. mechanical because he's the one with all the patents. <laughs> All right, one more article I wanted to share. This is from April 22, 1869. The journal learns that Homer D.L. Sweet of this city is a strongly backed up something for appointment as consul to Melbourne, Australia. Hmm. Have you heard of that? No. I, a lot of rumor and speculation gets printed mm -hmm. at this time, just, just like now. So... I don't think it was really serious. It's just that leapt out at me. Well, that's that's about all I have. Can you think of anything else you wanted to include? Not offhand, but he is just a dynamic individual. Yeah, he sure was. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. And thank you for coming and visiting. And hopefully that we were a little bit helpful oh, absolutely. in your quest this was... of learning about Homer. Oh, this was delightful. <laughs> and if 
any of my listeners want to learn more about Homer's suite or want to take advantage of the resources here at the Pompey Historical Society, what should they do? Well, they can write a letter to the Pompey Historical Society and send it to 8354 Route 20, uh, Mainless, New York. And you have a website, right? Yes, and it's the Pompey Historical Society.org. Great. Thanks for talking to me. All right. Thank you for coming. <laughs> Hugh here. Well, that's it for my first interview. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Ruth, thanks again for the lovely interview, and I hope to come back for an interview about Horatio Seymour. Next time, we'll move away from 1868 and jump forward 50 years to 1918. Until then, seek context. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you've been listening to the Historic Headlines Podcast. Thanks, as always, to Tom Trinisky for all his fabulous work on FultonHistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. Oh, he'd fly through the air with the greatest of ease. A daring young man on the flying trapeze. His movements were graceful, the girls he could please. And my love, he stole away.